Let's open our Bibles now to Romans chapter 12 as we continue our way through this glorious, glorious gift that the Lord has given to us. There is really no, no book that has ever been written quite like Romans. And we have been working our way for a number of weeks through this paragraph, verses 9 through 13. This morning we're going to finish that paragraph up. Let's read it together again, though. Hear the word of the Lord. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, for this good and pure gift that you have given to us, that by your Spirit's working through this very word, you have called us from death to life. You have given sight to our blinded eyes and hearing to our deaf ears. You have transformed us daily into the likeness of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will continue to transform us into his likeness more and more day by day. We pray, God, that, that you would accomplish your good purposes by your word this morning. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Lord, give us ears to hear this morning and hearts ready to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're finishing this morning this set of 13 directives, these sort of rapid-fire directives that, that the Apostle Paul has given to us that tell us how we are to live out our lives as Christians within the body of Christ. And after this verse this morning that we're looking at, verse 13, Paul's going to expand that out to living our lives as Christians in, in the world at large, but... These verses are aimed right at the believers. How do we live together as members of one another, as members of the body of Christ, as members within, within the local church? What, what is it that the gospel does in a life when it transforms a life? What, what is it that marks the life of true Christians? So by way of introduction, I want to take us back to the 1500s in France. Talk to you a little bit about the French Huguenots. I'm sure you're all excited for a little history this morning. Poor Mary Ruckersfeld isn't here this morning. And last time I talked about history, she sent me a text afterward and she's like, I did like that. That's my one person and now she's not here. This name, Huguenot, you may have heard it before. It's, it's the name that was given, probably a derogatory name, uh, for French Protestants. During the time of the Reformation, as, as um, the gospel spread, this rediscovery of Scripture, this rediscovery of the gospel, this, this rediscovery of the glory of God spread like wildfire throughout Europe. The gospel was spreading throughout France in the early 1500s, and it came against severe opposition from the Roman Catholic Church. Pastors were killed, men were burned at the stake. Women and children were drowned in the rivers just, for, just for, for, for holding to the true gospel as presented in Scripture. And French pastor John Calvin was a pastor in, in Paris and in 
1533, he fled from France to Geneva. And in 1541, Calvin published his crowning work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. Really the most influential work of Protestant theology that has probably ever been written. And it was originally written as a pastoral and passionate appeal to the king of France, King Francis I at that time, laying out biblical and New Testament doctrine for him and appealing to him on the basis of that biblical truth, stop persecuting Christians in your nation. Stop murdering women and children in the name of God. Stop burning pastors alive for holding to these truths presented in the New Testament. That was the original point of the Institutes when they were first written. Well, in in the 1550s, 88 pastors from France had fled to Geneva and were were trained under John Calvin there in Geneva, and they were, after their training, smuggled back into France to take the gospel into France, to take this this life-saving message into France, and all 88 of them were martyred for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, the same gospel we preach here this morning. In the 1560s, the, the Huguenots, these Protestant Christians, began fleeing in mass from France. They went all over the world. Some of them even landed in Florida and South Carolina. There's a, there's a French Huguenot society in South Carolina to this day. They, they spread out all over the world. But, but in August 24th, 1572, St. Bartholomew's Day, the king of France, King Charles, under the direction of his, his mother, who was a wicked woman, and wanted to rid, rid France, rid Paris of all of these heretic Huguenots, these heretic Protestants, And he set out on that day to to do just that under his mother's direction. We are going to rid Paris of all of these heretics, all of these Protestants. And they didn't do it by saying, you, you Huguenots, get your stuff, pack it up, leave. You're out of here, you're leaving today. That's not what they did. They locked the gates of the city and they sent out bands of armed soldiers to murder them in the streets, to murder them in their homes, and, and one by one, beginning with the nobles, and then on to the merchants and the wealthy, all the way down to the common people, they murdered them one by one in their homes, in the streets. And on that Sunday morning of St. Bartholomew's Day, after all the nobles were killed, the king unleashed the Parisian mob on these Christians, and he basically told them, you can have anything you want. Anything you see that belongs to a Huguenot, if you want their business, their possessions, their home, it's all yours. You only have to do one thing first, and that's kill them. And it all belongs to you. They threw babies out of third-story windows. They drowned men and women in the rivers. They piled up corpses all over the city. Well, there's a lot more that, that happened, but it wasn't until 1787 that the Edict of Toleration was, was issued and finally gave full freedom of conscience in religious practice to Protestant Christians in France, where they could worship God freely, according to Scripture, without persecution. So really, there's a, there's a period of, of more than 200 years where to believe the Bible was punishable by death. Not, not a humane death following a fair trial, but mob rule, torture, beatings, 
burnings, drownings. And so there were floods of French Huguenots running for their lives, fleeing France in the various waves of persecution that came over this period of over 200 years. And they fled all around the world to cities of refuge, and really to churches of refuge, safe places where they could go and be loved and cared for. They went to the continent of Africa. They went to South Africa. They came to North America and Holland and Switzerland and Germany and England. And everywhere that the Huguenots went, they were in need, desperate need. They had fled through the forests without anything. They had nothing fleeing for their lives, no clothes, no belongings, no supplies. Everything had been taken from them. They were completely and totally dependent on the kindness and hospitality of other Christians anywhere they went. And, and an amazing thing happened, particularly throughout Europe, but also in North America and any other country they traveled to, Christians opened their doors to them. Christians opened their homes to them. Christians opened their financial resources to these total strangers who were facing such tragedy and such trial and such struggle. And, and really, you can look at some of the city records, and, and it shows how many of these French Huguenots showed up, these French Protestants fleeing for their lives from fiery persecution, and how it totally overwhelmed the city's resources, and yet Christians, out of their own need, gave and gave and gave and gave. It's really, it's really an amazing period in church history. And these two directives we see here in verse 13, contributing to the needs of the saints, seeking to show hospitality, those are two commands that were absolutely needed in the middle of that fiery persecution. Life couldn't go on apart from Christians obeying these two commands. And they're two commands that are a little harder for us to grasp. They're a little harder for us to grasp than those saints were in the 16th and 17th centuries. They're a little harder for us to grasp than, than Paul's original audience in the first century. There, there are many Christians in our own day around the world in very desperate need of these exact same things, going through some of the th same things that, that these saints were facing. Brothers and sisters in China, North Africa, in the Middle East, all over the world, there are, there are Christians in need in a dire way for other Christians to meet their physical needs and practice hospitality. So let's look now together at these two directives that we see in verse 13. First, Paul says, contribute to the needs of the saints. Believers have needs. There are believers in desperate need and Christian, we need to own that. We need to own them. We need to own those needs. We need to consider those needs to be our own needs. That's this word Paul uses that's translated as contribute in the English Standard Version. It's koinonio. You may have heard the word koinonia before for fellowship. This is, a, this is, a, this is that same word. It means to, to have a share of it, to be a partaker of something. Before we really get into that, though, we need to understand this word saint, because we hear the word saint, and we might get some wrong ideas about what Paul's talking about. In, in Roman Catholic medieval theology, a saint is a person who did miracles, and in their lifetime, they're now dead, 
And they get voted in as saints by the ecclesiastical elites. That's still how things are done in the Roman Catholic Church. That's still what saint means there. It's basically a hall of fame for dead spiritual superheroes. That's not how the Bible uses this word. That's not how Paul uses this word. Biblically, a saint just means a Christian. Any Christian is a saint. Every Christian is a saint. It it just means someone who has been set apart unto God by God's grace. Remember how how the book of Romans started? Maybe not, because it was over two years ago when we were there. But Paul says this in, in, in chapter one, verse seven. To the saints in Rome who are loved by God, and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's not writing to dead spiritual superheroes. He's writing to everyday Christians living their lives in this world. The other thing we need to understand is when he says contribute to the needs of the saints, he's talking about needs. We need to to be clear about this right up front as well. Contributing to the needs of a Christian is not the same thing as enabling the indolence, the the laziness of Christians. Thessalonians 3.10, 1 Thessalonians 3.10 says, Even when we were with you, we'd give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So, So contributing to the needs of someone is not the same thing as enabling sloth. Laziness and sloth in Scripture are to be rebuked, not rewarded. That's not what we're talking about, enabling people. But but Christians here are commanded to meet the needs of the saints. And again, let's come back to this word contributing. It's a remarkable word, koinonia. It's the word for fellowship, for, for sharing in, for joining together. And what Paul is telling us here is not share your stuff with the one who is in need. He is saying share the needs of the other Christians. Those are two different things. Become a partaker in their need. There's an intimacy here. There's an attachment that Paul has in mind. This word here is a word used for the closeness of fellowship throughout the New Testament. Acts chapter 2 verse 42 describes the, the life and worship of the early church And he says they devoted themselves to the fellowship. Same word. Romans chapter 15, verse 27, Paul says, Gentiles have come to share. That's fellowship. It's the same word. Share in the spiritual blessings of Israel. 1 Corinthians 1, 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 1 Peter 4, 13, rejoice insofar as you share, as you fellowship, as you koinonia in the sufferings of Christ. 2 John verse 11, whoever greets a false teacher takes part in his wicked works. To take part in, it's the, it's the exact same word. 2 Corinthians 8, 4, the Macedonian Christians, Paul says, were begging us earnestly for the favor and taking part in the relief of the saints. He says their extreme poverty overflowed into a wealth of generosity as they gave financially even above their own means. This fellowship that Paul calls us to here in verse 13, the the fellowship in sharing in the needs of the saints, it it reflects the very nature of what the church is called to be. In verse 5 of Romans 10, Paul had told us already, we're members one of another. Like like a physical body, we're, we're connected to each other. We are dependent on each other. We are partakers of one another and our varied gifts. And so now here in verse 13, 
He shows us one more facet of what that looks like and what that means. We are partakers of one another's needs. We're to be sharers of the needs of our fellow members. John Murray says this, we are to identify ourselves with the needs of the saints to make those needs our very own. Charles Hodge says, the joy and sorrow of one member is the joy or sorrow of all the others. The necessities of one are and should be a common burden. You and I as Christians are to relieve the needs of our brothers and sisters as though they were our very own needs. That's really how we ought to look at one another. This isn't limited just to to financial needs, financial concerns. A, A heart of selfless love filled with generosity to meet the needs of other believers expresses itself in all kinds of areas, in in our care, in our time, in our service, in our prayer, and yes, in our our physical assistance with finances and and other needs. The, The joys of my brothers and sisters in Christ become my joys. The sorrows of my brothers and sisters of Christ are to become my sorrows. Their concerns are to become my concerns. Their burdens are to become my burdens. Their need of prayer is to become my need of prayer. In other words, the needs of others in the church become my needs. That's what Paul's, Paul's commanding us to, commending us to. I, I consider their needs to be my own, and I view caring for them as caring for myself. This is Christian thinking in the church. And by the way, what do we truly own? When we, when we talk about, about giving of our resources selflessly and generously for other people, what is it that we actually own? Whose resources have been placed at our disposal? Our time. Where did that come from? Our money, our gifts, our abilities, our talents. Who do they really belong to, Christian We're only stewards of these resources. They're on loan to us from God. We're to see all of these things that God has given to us as a reservoir for meeting the needs of others in the body of Christ. And there is this definite priority to the meeting of needs. The priority for the meeting of needs, it's not the whole world, it's the church. Galatians 6, verse 10, Paul says this, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Christian, we are called to do good to everyone. But then Paul says there in Galatians 6, especially those who are of the household of faith. And, And we use that word differently than the New Testament uses it. That word especially. We use especially to mean a subset of something larger. I like ice cream, especially moose tracks, which is the best of the ice creams. Actually, the best of the ice creams is mint chip because no one else in my house likes it. It's all mine. It's important to know, to identify those things. We just mean I, I, I like all of this. This is my favorite of them. That's not how the New Testament uses that word. What it means is specifically, particularly. In other words, it's not just a subset of something else. It's a narrowing of focus, zeroing in on the very thing that's being talked about. 
So, so Paul says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. And let me tell you what I really mean. Specifically, I'm telling you meet the needs of Christians. He's not telling us to meet every need that exists as if that were somehow possible. Very specifically, to meet the needs of the body of Christ. It's not, it's not the mission of the church to solve all the inequalities in this world. I was just talking to Brent this morning about interactions with people yesterday at the rally and how they, they want to throw it in your face. And you've probably seen some of this online with Roe versus Wade being overturned, praise God. And you've seen some of these, these reactions that people have and they want to bring up every injustice or every bad thing in the whole world and say, well, you haven't fixed that, so why do you care about this? Paul's not calling us to fix every inequality in the world, every injustice in the world, every sad thing and difficult thing in the world. Yes, Christians love. We are called to love our neighbor. We are called to love our unbelieving neighbor. We are to be kind. We are to be generous. We are to be selfless towards all. But we are commanded not to meet every need that exists, but very specifically to meet the needs within the body of Christ. That's our command. So we're not supposed to be a jerk to anyone, but we're supposed to treat our brothers and sisters in Christ as brothers and sisters who we are responsible for. Christians are to be known by their real love for one another. That's what the, the world will look at us and they will know we are Christ's disciples by the love that we show to one another, selfless, sacrificial love. The kind of love that doesn't view our possessions as our own, but is eager to give, that doesn't view our time as our own, but is eager to give, that doesn't view our gifts as our own, but is eager to give. And then even within the church, there is this certain priority of this kind of care that we're called to give. First Timothy verse five, or chapter 5, verse 3, Paul says this. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children and grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household, to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. He says in verse 8, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially the members of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So here's the bottom line in this priority that God sets forth in, in the way we care for one another. If you are listening this morning and in your mind is a list of all the things that everyone should be doing for you instead of a list of all the things you should be doing for other people, you are missing the point. You are missing the point of this passage. You are certainly missing the point of what has been said this morning. You, Christian, are called to a Christ-like attitude that empties self and gives and gives and gives. That's the call for every one of us. And, and yes, if you are in a time of need, we want to know about that. We can't share in your need. We can't obey this command unless we know about it. We want to share in your needs. Sometimes that requires the humility to admit it. It requires the humility to reach out and say, I have need. 
However you got there, believer, if you're there, we want to help you. You're going to find yourself there one day. It might not be financial. You might not need food. But you'll find yourself in need of your brothers and sisters to share in, to enter in to your burdens with you. And it's what we want. It's what we want to do. Second, then he says, seek to show hospitality. It's, it's, it's two words, this phrase, seek to show hospitality. In the Greek, it's just two words. Hospitality, pursuing. Hospitality, pursuing. This, this word, seek to show, means to pursue, to chase after. Often this word is translated in the New Testament as persecute. To persecute, to, to go after somebody, to do harm to them. It's the word used for the enemies of Christ chasing down Christians. And maybe you, maybe you saw some of the videos or you'll see them later of the rally that went on uh, yesterday in Indianapolis. And, and a few minutes into the rally, I believe as, as, as John Jacob was praying, maybe 150, 200 um, pro-murder pro-abortion people descended on the group with shouts and screams and anger and threats and everything else. That's the image of this word. It's to pursue. It's to go after. It's to, it's to swarm in on. It's a word used for the enemies of Christ doing what they do to Christians. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, 23 when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. It's the same word. Philippians 3.6, Paul says, I persecuted the church. It's the same word. But then later in that same chapter, Paul says, I press on towards the goal. It's the same word. He chased after it. He went after it with everything. So here in verse 13, it's not that negative connotation of someone chasing someone down to do, do them harm. It's the complete opposite. It, it carries the meaning of pursuit, but it is pursuing opportunities to be hospitable. We, we want to be eager to be hospitable. We want to be looking for an opportunity to swoop in with hospitality. And what, what's hospitality? Of course, hospitality, we, we think of, of hotels and and uh, resorts and restaurants and the whole hospitality industry. This, this Greek word is really a compound word. It just means love towards strangers. That's the word. So we are to be eager, looking for opportunity to swoop in to show love towards strangers. It's to have a welcome hand to help people you've never met. And specifically, Paul's talking about Christians that you've never met. And they become strangers no more. That's biblical hospitality. Colin Cruz, New Testament scholar, says, Hospitality is the process by means of which an outsider's status is changed from stranger to guest. That's hospitality. In the first century, this was incredibly important. For, for, for most of human history travel was very, very difficult. It's not like it is today. When I, when I had to go up to, 
to northern Michigan. I'm, I'm traveling to the funeral of an old friend with another old friend who I haven't seen in years. And he says, hey, I'll get the hotel. We'll go up there. I said, okay. So we're traveling and we're coming into the town where we're going to be staying. I said, do you want me to plug the hotel in first? We'll go there before we go to the viewing. And he says, oh, I haven't booked a hotel. Sounds about right, if you know him. Uh, <laughs> said, okay, no problem. Pull the phone out. We'll have a hotel booked in minutes, in moments. It, it'll be so easy. We'll have a whole list to pick from. The process is going to be over. It's not a problem. It, it's, it's not hard. It was easy. Traveling hundreds of miles to get to northern Michigan and back, it was not hard. It was expensive, but it wasn't hard. It, it, it's it's easy, but throughout much of history, travel has been incredibly hard, incredibly difficult, and dangerous. Danger from animals, danger from robbers, minimal roads to travel on. Travel was slow, travel was expensive, travel was dangerous, and most people simply couldn't do it. They certainly didn't travel for personal pleasure. Throughout most of history, most people never got farther away than seven miles from their home. There were none of the modern luxuries that we enjoy today. That we're, that we're so used to them today, we even complain about it. I had to wait five whole minutes in the lobby of that hotel before I got my keys. And I had to talk to a human. I like to do where I just, my phone is my key. I never talk to anybody. I just go straight to my room. What am I, a peasant? I got to stand here and talk to this guy? We're so used to these conveniences that... We, we can't understand what it was like for them. In the world of the New Testament, Christian hospitality was vital. There was no survival without that. The, the gospel was not designed to stay within seven miles of Jerusalem. It, it was to go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And how was it going to get there? Somebody had to go. Somebody had to take it. And Paul talks in, in 2 Corinthians 11 of being in danger constantly in his travels. Tra travel wasn't safe. Colin Cruz again says strangers needed hospitality. They would be treated as non-human because they were potentially a threat to the community. Strangers had no standing in law or custom and therefore needed a patron in the community they were visiting. There was no universal brotherhood in the ancient Mediterranean world. This was needed. And more than that, as Paul writes to the Romans here, in Acts chapter 18, verse 2, we read of this edict of Claudius, the Roman emperor who expelled all the Jews from Rome, many of whom were now Christian, were just kicked out of Rome. You can't stay here. You have to leave. After that edict was rescinded and the Jews were allowed to come back into their home city, most of the Jews who'd been banished from Rome came back with nothing. They were destitute. They didn't have homes to come back to. They didn't have possessions to come back to. They, they had nothing. And Paul is writing here this letter to the Romans, encouraging them to be hospitable. To, to be those who love and welcome strangers who would consider the Christian stranger an honored guest, not an outsider. Because those Christian Jews who were coming back to Rome were in great need. 
They, they were in desperate need, and the church in Rome needed to be a sanctuary for them, needed to be a safe place for them. They needed to be ready to receive these sojourners. And Modern American life doesn't exactly provide for us the kind of opportunities that Paul's talking about in this verse here as we look around right at this moment. But this heart that he's talking about is so essential for us. This command stands for us. As much as it did for those in the time of the, the, the Reformation and the persecution that came, as much as it did in the first century, this command stands for us. A heart of hospitality and readiness to hospitality must be the practice and pursuit of every Christian. That's part of why we're happy to partner with Salome Missionary Homes. Why we're, why we're going down there a week from today. That their mission is hospitality and care and respite for missionaries. Third John verse 5 says, Beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified of your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers in the truth. What do we do when we extend hospitality to, to the Christian who is in need? Or we extend hospitality to the missionary who is in need? We share of our finances. In particular, as I look at, at Salome and the trips we take there every year and our ongoing partnership with them, we, we share of our finances. What are we doing when we do that? We share of our time. We share of our skill, some of us. Some of us next week will be sharing of our skill. I'll just be like, here's these two hands. Tell me something to do. What we're doing is participating in the advance of the gospel through these missionaries who we don't know We'll never know them well. And as Paul says here, or as John says here, we have a share in the work that's being done. And there may come a day here where we live when Christians need refuge. And friends, it may be communities like ours that Christians need to, to come to. Already we're seeing Christians moving out of some of the cities they live in and moving to smaller communities where they can establish cities of refuge. Because these are dark days we're living in. We, we may find Christians coming here who have little to no possessions or resources or means to pay you back. They just simply need this, this kind of thing was everywhere in the first century, in the early church. This was present at times and in places throughout all of church history. It remains present in, in pockets of the world right now, and it may be true here today. We may need to be a church of refuge, a city of refuge. And so this is the directive for all Christians to follow here and now, to pursue hospitality, to, to chase after it, to take initiative. To, to pursue hospitality, to, to chase after hospitality is to take initiative. 
To, to practice true hospitality is to do so without complaining. To not do, do so begrudgingly, but to do so with joy. 1 Peter 4.9 says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. It means we, we don't do something for someone and then go, what a, what a burden they are. Usually we want to let people know either our frustrations or how great we are. I'll tell you, I helped them for two days. Here's my back if you're interested in patting it. No, do, do, do so without grumbling. The, the heart of hospitality and generosity is fundamentally a radical commitment to others. That's what we're called to in the church, a radical commitment to others. It's, it's getting outside of ourselves and thinking about others' needs. What does that mean for us on a practical level? What does it mean for us on a Sunday morning as a church? What does it mean for us when we come together as the local church? Well, first it means to make strangers feel at home, to make people feel welcome here. To, to feel like honored guests and no longer strangers. Now, look, the unbeliever is going to come here, here and feel like a fish out of water. I, I have no interest in having a service that the unbeliever is comfortable in at all. I hope we preach too much. I hope we sing too much truth. I hope we pray too much. I hope, they, I hope they're well aware there's something different here. That's not what I'm talking about, and that's not what Paul's talking about. But when the Christian comes, oh, I love when we get Christian visitors who are here on vacation, and they come to church, and, and they feel this kindred spirit as we worship together as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And they don't love, leave here feeling like strangers. They leave here feeling like their hearts have been joined to ours somehow. You could just look around the room right now and say, who do you need to open yourself up to? Who do you need to invite for lunch or dinner? Don't invite them for dinner tonight. We have church. You could do it beforehand and then come. Who, who do I just need to take the time to get to know? Maybe you've been in this church together for months already or years already, but you look around and you're like, man, I don't, I don't know them. We, we, can, we can obey these commands in the way we relate to parents and their children in the church. Making them feel loved. Making them feel wanted. If you see a family with their hands full, with active and, yes, noisy kids, don't frown at them from your seat. They're not sinning. You're sinning. Get up and help them. Show hospitality. Give of yourself. They, they will be blessed. You will be blessed and less grumpy. And everyone who sees it will be blessed by the evident love shown. I've had a number of people talk to me of, 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 of witnessing, generally one of the ladies of the church, get up and cross the room and go to a family with, with restless kids and just quietly be of help to them. 
I've heard from the parents how touched they were, how welcomed they felt and loved they felt, and I've heard from people who aren't even involved in the situation who said, that's how it's done. And I've got to tell you, that's how it's done. Turning around and glaring is not how it's done. We might just make a banner, hang it up front that says that. We just put a mirror right here. Look at your face. Look at the frown. I'm just venting now. It's not helpful. Selfless love through the pursuit of kindness to others. The intentional, energetic, calorie-burning pursuit of kindness to others. That's what we're called to. These two commands here in verse 13, owning the needs of other Christians and pursuing a heart of hospitality, they have a couple things in common. They're two expressions of genuine love, but also they're both costly. They require resources. They require the expenditure of those resources. They cost money, perhaps. They cost time, for sure. And if you're truly meeting the need of other believers, if you're truly pursuing hospitality, then you'll be expending these resources without any expectation of being paid back for it. John Calvin said, to do good to those whom we expect the least recompense is the heart of this kind of love. It's to do good to those who we know couldn't pay us back and we wouldn't want them to. Just to give and to give and to give, to give of yourself, to give of your time, to give of your energy, to give of your gifts, to give of your resources. It is an investment you will not get back in this life, but it redounds to eternity and it glorifies God to a watching world. It's worth it. You were made for this. You were saved for this. And it's a reflection of our Savior's love. The one who left heaven. The one who had every claim to everything in the universe. And, and, and left that and came to us. We, his enemies. We who were in need. We who were outside the family. He came to meet our greatest needs. To show great hospitality, to make us no longer to be strangers by coming to earth and participating with us in human flesh. Going to a cross and and taking our need upon himself, taking our sin upon himself, bearing them before the Father, which we could not do for ourselves. Removing them from the believer as far as the east is from the west, bringing us home with himself as fellow heirs. To, to meet the needs of others, to, to practice hospitality is to live out what Christ modeled for us. It's to be so under the reign of grace, so transformed by the grace of God that it transforms our lives and it flows out onto those who are around us, particularly those in the church. Oh, friends, may these things mark our lives. May this joyous pursuit mark us and mark this church. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Lord, it challenges us. It does does sit before us like a mirror, revealing 
our hearts, laying bare our deeds. Lord, there's not a one of us in this room who can, who can say with a clear conscience that we do this perfectly. So we ask you, Lord, to, by your Spirit, ignite in us a desire for this. Let our hearts resonate with, with these instructions from our brother Paul, Lord, that we would want to be obedient in this area, that we would want to serve your people, love your people, care for your people, welcome your people as we ourselves have been welcomed by you. I pray, God, that, that this kind of love, Lord, even all 13 of these directives we've heard from Paul and the ones that will follow after, that these things would mark our lives and so mark them that the watching world would look at us and see, Lord, the truth of your gospel, the power of your gospel to save and to transform. But Lord, you'd be glorified in us and through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.